Well, good morning, Compass Bible Church. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to be here. I am uh, I'm so thankful for you as a church. I'm thankful for every opportunity I'm here. Like Paul to the Philippians, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. It is, uh, it, it is so encouraging to me to know a church of this conviction, of this passion, uh, this vision and, uh, and vitality, living out authentic Christianity in the midst of, uh, of this great uh, metropolis. I'm just so thankful for you. Uh, Mary and I are thrilled to be here and, uh, and, and, and thrilled to be here with dear friends. And I mean, the church, uh, I have, have a chance to speak to so many of you. Uh, but in particular, I just want to be honest, it's, it's wonderful for us to be uh, with Mike and Carlin. And, uh, and Mike Fabares, you have a remarkable pastor and preacher. <laughs> Thankful to be here with him. And, and I want to thank you for sharing his ministry uh, with the larger church uh, I was uh, not too long ago in, uh, in Palm Beach, Florida, uh, which is just like this with humidity. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, listening to Mike on the radio and just reminded of how what is grounded in a local congregation and in expository preaching here uh, reaches so far. So God bless you. It's wonderful to be here. We're going to be turning to Matthew chapter 6. If you do have an instinct... Uh, in Luke, because you're being so well taught in Luke right now, the parallel passage would be Luke chapter 11, but we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And, and we're going to look at, 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 a, at a passage that, uh, that will be put into context in the Sermon on the Mount. But we'll begin reading at chapter 6, verse 1. Matthew writes, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others for their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, this great massive sermon in the Gospel of Matthew in which Jesus instructs his disciples about the nature of Christ's own kingdom. 
and, and, and thus revealed in this passage is, is so much that we need to know, not only about the age to come, but about this, this very age and our responsibility. And what we see here are instructions, very practical instructions about how we are to give, how we are to pray, and how we are to fast. So three disciplines of the Christian life, three disciplines of, of, of the spiritual life that were well known to ancient Israel, and, 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 and three different disciplines that had been hypocritically distorted. And uh, the, the whole key, as you understand here very quickly, is, is the verb seeing, uh, sees. And, and it's about those who do these things to be seen by others. And Jesus says right off, don't do that. Don't give in order to be seen, to receive praise from others. Don't pray in order to be watched in your praying, to be admired by, by others. Don't fast in order to impress people by your fasting. And the contrast here is very clear. We're told not to do such things, these disciplines, in order to be seen by others. If, if so, we'll have received whatever reward we want. If our reward is the praise and admiration or the... Uh, or perhaps even the sympathy in our gloomy fasting of uh, fellow human beings, then, then I, I, you know, Jesus is saying, if, if that's what you want, then I hope you enjoy it because God's not impressed. In contrast, we're told to do these things in secret, uh, and we're told that our Father who sees, there's that verb again, who sees in secret, will reward you, Jesus says. And, and, and the background to the giving, it's really clear. The trumpet there is actually a, a, a metal piece uh, brass-like that was uh, put in place, and uh, the Pharisees, wanting to be ostentatious in their giving, would actually break down in their, uh, their, their, their offering into the smallest coins imaginable so that they could ring the metal as often as possible. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it, it's ludicrous. I mean, first of all, you, you, you just look at this and you go, well, what kind of, what kind of showy you know, philanthropy is this. And then you, you, you go to some places where, I, I've been to places where every chair has a name tag on it. This is the Ellen Somebody Memorial Chair. And uh, maybe we're not as far from that as we'd like to think. But it's the, the ring, the ring, the ring. Uh, during the Reformation, Tetzel, who was uh, sell, selling indulgences, he used to say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the, the soul from purgatory springs. This ostentatious kind of thing. Bad theology, bad offering, bad discipline, bad giving. And instead, Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And that sounds a bit dis, disorienting. Uh, and obviously, this is Jesus using a picture. He's saying, don't, don't, don't premeditate, don't calculate, don't, don't, don't try to plan in order to receive the maximum attention by your giving. Just give. A joyful heart, a grateful heart gives. Your father who sees in secret, he'll know what you've given. You have Jesus doing this, by the way. Remember the widow's might. You know, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus knows because he can read the heart, John tells us in John chapter 2. He knows what is inside of man. He sees everything. He sees all. And then praying. We're going to turn to that in just a moment. But, but in the end of the passage, it's fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Don't you love the graphic nature of this? These are people who want to look deprived because of their self-discipline in fasting. They want to look skinny. 
and gaunt and hungry in order that you would say, what a holy person. And uh, Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Do the opposite. Actually, anoint your head and wash your face, you know, because who are you trying to impress? If, you, if you're trying to impress fellow human beings, again, I hope you enjoyed that, but that's all you're going to have. But instead, your father who sees in secret will reward you. But the middle section is on prayer, and it's the longer section. And, and what I want us to look at today is the, one of the most famous of all the passages in the New Testament, most commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. What I want us to think about is how Christ instructs his own disciples to pray. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, where you are currently studying, in Luke chapter 11, uh, it's the disciples of Jesus who come to him, and they ask him to teach them to pray. And, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray as John has taught his disciples. So John the Baptist had taught his disciples how to pray, and the disciples of Jesus come to him and they say, Lord, we want you to teach us how to pray. They had observed Jesus at prayer, but they needed instruction. That's encouraging to me. I'm going to be real honest. Um, it's really encouraging to me that the disciples of Jesus needed help knowing how to pray. Uh, because I do, and uh, throughout my Christian life, I have. And so it's encouraging for me to know I'm not outside the norm. Other Christians just know intuitively how to pray. Actually, we have to be taught how to pray. And in this case, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. And secondly, there's another huge insight that hits us immediately, which is before teaching his disciples how to pray, Jesus teaches his disciples how not to pray. All right? Why? Well, it's because of human nature. And uh, perhaps this will seem strange, but it will not seem strange if you are a parent. Because there's an awful lot of life you've got to teach the what not before the what. When I was about 13, my father, who was uh, really handy and uh, a wonderful uh, craftsman with so many things, he, he, uh, he was introducing me to a table saw. And uh, at age 13, I really, really wanted to make stuff. I wanted to use that table saw. There's something, I, I don't know if women or girls get any such passion, but the idea of this toothy blade cutting through a piece of wood, smelling that sawdust, just feeling that power, I wanted that. I wanted to know exactly how to do it and all the angles and everything, but before my dad would teach me how to do it, it, it was a long time he was teaching me how not to do it. Because doing it wrong, you don't get a do-over <laughs> if things go badly. Oops, at that point, is really dangerous. So it was all this about what you don't do, 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 you don't do. Do you hear me clearly what you don't do? Tell me what you don't do. All right, then, only then, did we get to what you do. Jesus here also, following the same logic and following human nature, tells us what not to do, and it's really interesting to see what he says what not to do. The first thing he says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't pray to impress. Pray an authentic prayer of integrity. The hypocrites are those who look as if they're trying to please God, and they want to be seen looking as if they're trying to please God. They want to demonstrate this ostentatious devotion and discipline and righteousness, but uh, Jesus says, 
The very fact that that's what they want indicates that's not who they are. It's the very nature of hypocrisy. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus will tell the parable of the, uh, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. What we're supposed to know in conventional Judaism is that the Pharisee belongs there, but the tax collector does not belong there. But then you'll remember the two men both pray at the temple. The, 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 the Pharisee stands, looks towards heaven, sticks his hands out, and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Amazing, isn't it? But let me ask you, have you not ever been tempted to pray that way? Just to start out saying, God, I want to thank you that I'm me. I look at other people and I'm just so thankful I'm me. And uh, I know how, how much pleasure you derive from me. And uh, so in our prayer, I'm going to agree that the center of the universe is me. And I'm not like these other people. And you understand this too, because it's so tempting to say, I can't be that bad because I'm not him. I'm not her. And the easiest thing for the tax collector, uh, excuse me, for the Pharisee, was having a tax collector in view. I thank you that I'm not like other men, adulterers, et cetera, et cetera, or even like this tax collector. You know, that's where the, that's where the, 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 the silence is supposed to fall and the very offense that a tax collector would be there. But, but then when the tax collector prays, how does he pray? He will not even look up to heaven, but he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He doesn't want to be seen by anybody. He doesn't want to draw any attention to himself. He's not proud of who he is. He's devastated by the knowledge of his sin. All he knows is to pray for mercy. And Jesus says at the end of that parable that this man, speaking of the tax collector, went home justified, having received mercy and grace from God, rather than the other. He doesn't say these two men both received mercy. That'd be surprising enough. He says the one, the tax collector, went home justified and the other didn't. Now, that's really scary, isn't it? it? It's scary that we could come to church. We, we can. Here's a danger. We can come to church looking for validity for ourselves. And even by the fact that we come to church, unlike other people, believing in even greater validity in just what righteous and wonderful people we are. That's the opposite of Christian worship. If it doesn't, if it doesn't get expressed in the heartfelt yearning for God's mercy. If we're not here because of the greatness of who he is, if we are here because of the greatness of who we are, then we too are hypocrites. That Jesus says, don't do that, don't do that. He says instead, he says, when you pray, go to your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's the seeing again. Now, Jesus is not saying don't pray uh, together. He's not saying when you are meeting together in, in the worship of the church, don't pray congregationally. He's not saying don't get together for prayer meetings. As a matter of fact, you look through the New Testament, there is the absolute command that Christians are to pray together. There, there is the example given to us of, uh, of Christians who pray together. What he's saying is if, if, if you're going to look at these two pictures, um, 
prayer is really always an audience of one. It's, uh, it's a matter of the Christian coming before our Heavenly Father, praying for mercy and praising Him for who He is. And that, that is to be done in such a way that the attention does not come to us, but rather to God Himself. And, and then secondly, there's another danger. It's not just ostentatious prayer to draw attention to ourselves. The second danger comes in verses 7 and following. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The Gentiles, that's another word for idolater in the, uh, in, in the context here, and, and an idolatrous worship. One of the common things was just the, the phrases that were repeated over and over and over again. And perhaps you're familiar with some forms of devotion in which this is just the case. Almost like it's a, it, it, it's a formula. It's just said over and over and over and over again. And uh, there are prayers. The Roman Catholic Church has, uh, has official prayers. I can still remember when I was in high school and I had a friend who was Roman Catholic who, uh, who, who went for uh, the confession and was told he was to do like 150 Hail Marys. Well, who, who, what is that all about? Evidently, God's not impressed by piling up words over and over and over and over again. And, and so we're told here, don't do that. Don't heap up empty phrases. Okay, but let's just admit something. It's very easy for our prayer to take the form of empty phrases. Um, Christians, if we're not thinking about it, we're, we're going to be prone to do this. When I was growing up, Mary and I spent our teenage years in the same church. The offertory prayer was given by a deacon every Sunday morning, and no one evidently taught these deacons how to pray, probably either personally or privately. It was, it was just not good. So they ended up saying the same thing, sometimes over and over again. And, and it seemed like every one of them eventually got to, and God bless the gift and the giver, okay? Well, yes to that. But prayer's got to be more than that. It's not just a formula. It happened in my own life and in my own family. When I was a, I'm, I'm the eldest of four children, and uh, my parents, wonderful Christian parents, and, and so we were teaching, uh, they were teaching, uh, my younger brothers and my sister how to pray before a meal, and so uh, it was a very simple prayer. Some of you probably knew it. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. And when you have a toddler, it's a wonderful prayer to teach a two or three-year-old. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. I had much younger siblings. And so that, that's what we were praying in order to teach them. And uh, it got in my brain. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. It was like a memory chip. All right? But at the same time, the day I turned 14, I started working as a bag boy at the grocery store. And uh, there was something we had to say, had to take the groceries out. You would put the groceries in the trunk. I know that sounds archaic. It's a kind of a thing with a lid on the back of a car. And you put, you put stuff in it. But you know, that was the way it worked. And right after you put the groceries in the car, uh, I was trained. You are to look at the customer and say, thank you for shopping at Publix. Please come again. And uh, I did it over and over again. Thank you for shopping with us. Please come again. Thank you for shopping with us. Please come again. Thank you for shopping. Please come again. And then you know what happened. The chips got crossed. 
And uh, so I took this lady's groceries out, and I can still remember the horror of recognizing what I had done because I saw her face. And, uh, and so, you know, I put the groceries in her car, looked at her with straight earnestness, with chipper little voice coming out of a 14-year-old face, and I just said, God is great, God is good. Let us thank you for our food. And, uh, you know, and it was strangely appropriate, actually, I mean, just given, given what it was. And she gave me a look, not of horror, but of amusement, you know, sounded like, uh, yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, got into her car. You know, she just, she just had her groceries taken out by a 14-year-old religious fanatic. And, uh, and I was going back in the store, and I realized, uh-oh, uh-oh, that look on her face. What did I just say? And it's better than it happening at the dinner table, where it was my turn, and I just said, let us pray. Thank you for shopping at Publix. Please come again. Uh, and so it, it, was, it was actually, if, I'm gonna, if I was going to get the wires crossed, it was the right rather than the wrong context. But still, still. Even in my 14-year-old self, I recognize this is just, it's, it's just passing through. Uh, it, it's an empty phrase. But here, Jesus tells us that we are not to pray with these empty phrases. And I love the way Jesus says it, heaped up. And, and you understand what this is like. You've heard people pray this way. And, and maybe you've been tempted to pray this way. You don't know what to say, so you just keep heaping up phrases. Jesus said, God isn't impressed. And by the way, he knows what you need before you ask him. God's the sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God. He knows everything. He even knows what we need before we ask it. Now, Jesus is not going to tell us not to ask. We're going to see that. But he is going to tell us don't ask as if we're informing God of what he doesn't know. Or if there's some kind of phrase we're supposed to know, some secret code. Jesus says none of that. Instead, he says, when you pray, pray then like this. Now, let's think for a moment. If Jesus is talking to his disciples, and to his own disciples, he says, when you pray, pray like this. Don't you want to hang on every word? Don't, don't, don't you just want to say, okay, well, wait just a minute. I want, I want to record this. Uh, I, I, I want to remember these words the rest of my life. But when you see, hear Jesus say, but when you pray, pray like this, to be honest, we're probably expecting a long prayer. We're told that Jesus prayed for long periods of time. And, and there are times we know we need to pray for long periods periods of time. But it's really interesting that when Jesus gave his disciples a model prayer to pray, it is not noticeable and distinctive by its length, but by its depth. He gives us a pattern, a pattern more remarkable for its depth than for its length. You can say all the words of the Lord's prayer in less than and really far less than one minute. You can read the Lord's Prayer in a matter of seconds. But notice what is here. Let's just hear it entire again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Now, I said there's depth here. Every prayer we ever pray had better be based upon this prayer. 
Every, every, every session of prayer into which we enter should be marked by this same pattern. Whether it be short by necessity or long by opportunity, our prayer had better be based upon this prayer. This is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We need to look at what's here. It begins, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first thing we note is that if we are praying an authentically Christian prayer, we're not going to be praying to some deity in general. We are not praying to the force. We're not praying just to whomever it may concern, whatever deity may hear. We're praying to the one true God. The God in heaven. And we get to call him Father. Now, we see that and we, and we hear it. And it, it, it makes sense to us because calling God Father, to those of us who are followers of Christ, it comes to us naturally. But understand, this is early in the ministry of Jesus. This is even early in the Gospel of Matthew. And at this point, what the disciples knew is that God was Jesus' Father. But now Jesus teaches his disciples that we are to pray our Father who art in heaven. Now, we have to be really clear then. In the New Testament, what does it mean to call God Father? What it means is that we who are in Christ, covered by the blood of the Lamb, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have confessed with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord and who believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, those who are united to Christ by faith, those Paul says, in one of the most powerful metaphors of the gospel, those who are adopted in Christ by the Father as his own joint heirs, we have the right, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is, to pray to the one true and living God in heaven as our Father. Now, here's the thing. Father is not just a name. It implies a relationship. And it implies a relationship of knowledge and a relationship of trust. To call God Father, especially to think of sinful human beings having the privilege of calling God Father, it's astounding. And, and Jesus says to his disciples, if I'm going to teach you how to pray, I'm first going to teach you to whom you pray, and I'm going to tell you what you say to him. You call him Father. Now, in, in recent times, there have been a couple of uh, theological problems that have emerged here, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain neither one of them has infected this congregation, but you ought to at least know about them. Uh, the first was what emerged in the 19th and 20th centuries in liberal theology, or what was called Protestant liberalism. And so they tried to get away from the, the gospel as revealed in the Bible, and specifically the New Testament. And they began to kind of turn the Christian message into this universalistic message of, uh, of God's benevolence. And, and so they talked about the universal fatherhood of God. And uh, so uh, sometimes they said that the two main doctrines of Protestant liberalism were the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. So basically, God loves everybody. We should love each other. Go home. And, uh, and, and, and so here's the question. Is God 
everyone's father? Well, he created the entire world. But the right way to understand this, according to Scripture, is that God is fatherly to every single human being, the fact that he's given us life. As the Bible says, he makes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He's fatherly in his benevolence to all creation. But he is father, not just fatherly. He is father to those who belong to Jesus, the Son. And, uh, and so that's really important. We cannot reduce the gospel to the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, get together in a circle, sing kumbaya, and go home happy. That, that denies the gospel. The, the, the second thing that uh, has become controversial in recent years is feminist theologians saying that it's discriminatory to call God father and suggesting that that's patriarchalism, it's, uh, it's, it's oppressive and, uh, and, and not inclusive. Several years ago, the, uh, the more liberal uh, denominations came up with what they called the Inclusive Language Dictionary or Manual of Worship, in which uh, you have all these new metaphors and names for God. It, on the one hand, they want to feminize it, so it's, it's God our Heavenly Mother, as well as God our Heavenly Father. I'll just point out that the Bible does not allow that. Let's be really clear. The, the Bible does not say that God the Father is male. He's a spirit. He doesn't have a body. It does say that he's father. And we don't get to rename him. He names himself. And he does so over and over again in Scripture. And he loves his name. He, he will tell Israel that he's going to keep covenant with them, with all the other nations watching, not because of who they are, but because of who he is. He says, I am going to do this for the sake of my name. He tells us in the Old Testament that he is jealous of his name. We do not pray to the great cosmic heavenly parent. We pray to God our Father. And that's how we are instructed to pray. That's how Jesus told his disciples to pray. And, and so we pray without embarrassment, without hesitation, without any confusion, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now that's strange. It, it, for one thing, we don't use the word hallowed much anymore. Right? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm just going to go out on a limb here and believe that none of you used the word hallowed in the last week. And, and, and a part of the problem here is that in one word, there isn't any English word that communicates exactly what this is supposed to say. So hallowed actually works. It's just old English. I'm going to make up a word that you'll recognize, but it's not good English, so please don't don't misunderstand. It, it, it could be said, our Father who is in heaven, holified be your name. Now, my guess is you didn't talk about anything being holified last week either. But it does make sense. That's what it means. It means may your name be made holy. And uh, that's what hallowed means. All hallows eve is before all saints eve. It, it, the world doesn't know what it means. It, it, it means may your name be hallowed, which means made holy and um, that's what we're praying for. But then there's an issue of a question here, isn't there? I mean, how can we make God any holier than he is? How can we make his name any holier than it is? The Bible's really clear that God is infinite in all of his perfections. In, in Isaiah chapter 6, we are told that he is holy, holy, holy. He's ultimately, quintessentially, infinitely holy. So what does it mean we are to pray, holy be your name? It's the same problem, theologically, with the word glory. Because God has infinite glory, but we're told we are to glorify him. Well, how does that add up? How can we as 
even redeemed creatures, how can we add glory to God? Well, the answer to that is pretty easy. It's, it's because there are two dimensions to God's holiness, and there are two dimensions to His glory. In God's internal, His own personal glory and holiness, we can add nothing to it. We can't make God more holy. We can't make God more glorious. But the second dimension is the knowledge and expression of His holiness and His glory in creation. So that's why we can sing about glorifying God. That's why in worship we seek to give God the glory. We're not actually contributing anything to Him, but we are making His glory more evident in the world. When we say glorify your name in all the earth, we mean we want more people to know you. We mean we want the, the, the creation to more visibly show your glory. We are praying here that God's holiness the holiness of his name will be ever more visible in the world around us. Okay, so how's that going to happen? Well, the Bible tells us that there is a testimony to the holiness of God's name in the holiness of Christ's people. That's why Peter tells us that we are to be holy even as God is holy because the holiness of Christ's people, which is explainable only by the power and mercy of God, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in us, the holiness of Christ's people is to demonstrate the holiness of the God who made us and saved us, the holiness of his name. We're to pray for that. We are, it's a God-centered prayer. It begins with knowing who God is and begins with praying that God's name will be famous and recognized as holy. When I was a teenager, I was, uh, I was given a tract on prayer. It was actually very helpful. It was very short, but it was very helpful. And all I remember about it really is the title, which was the Acts of Prayer, A-C-T-S. Some of you may have come across the very same the very same suggestion in prayer. It's, it's very healthy. It was, it was very helpful to me. It's the A is for adoration, the C is for confession, the T is for thanksgiving, and the S is for supplication. So the acts of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. The important thing is, is that prayer begins with A, adoration. It does here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Authentic Christian prayer begins with the declaration of the glory, the holiness the wonder of the one true and living God. We're praying to him, not to whom it may concern. If anyone hears us pray, let us be absolutely determined that they're going to know to whom we're praying. Then the second phrase, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is talking to his disciples about the kingdom. And, and here's what's so important. We, we have to recognize that this part of the prayer is actually the most politically subversive argument you might find anywhere in the Bible. And I know you didn't come to church this morning to become a political subversive. But in one sense, you should. In one sense, you should. Because he, here's the thing. All the kingdoms of this earth are passing. All the kings. One of the greatest imagery uh, uh, passages of the book of Revelation is, is all the kings and princes of the earth bringing their glory to the feet of Jesus. And, and so I want you to know how privileged I believe I am and we are uh, to live in this nation 
And, and then we look at it especially and we consider how many Christians have suffered under such great persecution. The, the, the earliest Christians we know suffering under the persecution of Rome even in the time of the New Testament. Uh, believers all over the world who've been not only chased into the catacombs, but been martyred for the faith. And even right now with threats of groups such as ISIS, you know, if they are worshiping or are believing Christians, doing so in the face of, of uh, the very threat of death. And we're very thankful for the blessings of not living in that situation. But the reality is that the Lord's Prayer is a deeply subversive prayer. I, 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 as I argued, it, it, it turns the world upside down. It tells us that the kingdoms of this world are going to bow to the kingdom of Christ. One of the confusions uh, that comes to all human beings, but we have to be careful as Christians, is that we don't see the coming thing as the passing thing, and the passing thing is the coming thing. And, and so we see the powers that be, and they look like they're coming ever more in authority, but actually they're all going to be passing. And, and Jesus tells us that we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're actually praying, may the justice and mercy and the righteousness of God be as realized on earth as they are in heaven. Now we know ultimately that is not going to happen until the kingdom of Christ comes in its fullness. But even right now, even right now, Christians are to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's an incredible mandate. It's an astounding prayer. It's, it's a prayer prayed in, the, in defiance to all the principalities and powers. All will one day pass away. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, th this operates two ways in the lives of Christians. Christians under oppression, praying this prayer, know that their oppressor will one day bow to Jesus. But it should operate in another way. Those of us who are not under oppression, who are recipients of uh, the blessings of living in an experiment of ordered liberty and constitutional government, we too are warned that we had better not feel too much at home in this world. No matter its blessings, we are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then in verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus has told us that we're not to pile up empty phrases as the Gentiles do because our Father knows what we need before we ask Him. But He doesn't say, so don't ask. He actually says, ask even more basically than you're tempted to ask. Give us this day our daily bread, our daily sustenance, our hourly survival is entirely dependent upon the grace and mercy of God. Everything we have, we, we know this, we know good enough, we know well enough to say everything we have comes from God, but it is interesting that even Christians, mature Christians, keeping a list of prayer requests, we tend to limit those prayer requests to extraordinary things. The Bible tells us we are to pray for one another. We are to pray for the sick. Uh, we are to pray for specific needs. When we have a list of prayer requests, 
It's right that we list those concerns. Someone's sick, someone's been injured, someone's in a particular danger, someone's in a context in which they need rescue, someone is looking for wisdom, someone, someone is looking for a husband, someone's looking for a wife, someone's praying for children, uh, someone's praying for how to raise their children. Someone, th- 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 we're to pray for all of that. And, and so a healthy church and a healthy Christian has a healthy list of prayer requests. But Jesus said the problem isn't that you have the list. The problem would be thinking that you're informing God. God, I want to pray today because I just want you to know that Cindy's sick. Oh, and by the way, if you could look inside Tom's heart, you would know that he's carrying a heavy burden. How ridiculous is that? You're praying to our Father who is in heaven. He knows everything. But that doesn't mean we're not supposed to ask. Well, why then do we ask? Well, Again, just imagine for a moment, if you're a parent, why you make your children ask for things. Why do you make your children ask for things? It is because they need to be taught that they are given things, that they don't just happen. Milk doesn't just appear on the table. It's an entire process that we don't need to go into about how it got there. But it's by God's benevolent hand that we have this. Now, you don't get to preach an entire message on gratitude every time you give a a kid a glass of juice. But you are in that entire process just reminding by the very pattern, somebody did this. Somebody provides this. You ask, and I give this to you. Jesus said that even earthly fathers being evil, and he doesn't mean they're particularly evil, he just meant being sinful. If they would not give their son who is hungry a stone instead of bread, how much so does our heavenly father want to give to his children what we need? But we're to ask for it. We're not just to ask for extraordinary things. We're not just to ask for remarkable, unusual things. We are to pray, give us this day our daily bread. What does that do? Well, it's like the child with with the parent. It reminds us we aren't self-sufficient. We're not self-sufficient in any sense. We're absolutely dependent upon God's provision all the time, every single breath we take. And so this most basic of prayers that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it includes S, that's the acts in supplication. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Again, supplication is one of those old words we don't use all that much. But a supplicant is one who comes before a greater to ask, to make a request. And that's exactly what Jesus tells us about prayers. We make our requests known to God. The Apostle Paul also affirms this. And Jesus says, yes, he knows in advance, but ask anyway. Because in asking, we are, if nothing else, reminding ourselves of the fact that it is from God's hand that everything comes, including our daily bread. The C, confession, it shows up here. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's verse 12. The word debts is rightly, rightly translated here. It's not wrong. It's right. It's because the New Testament describes our sin as a debt. Indeed, it describes our sin as a debt we cannot and never could pay. It's a debt that Jesus pays on our behalf in his substitutionary atonement. It is why we sing Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson dot. He washed it white as snow. And, and, and he, he washes us from our sins. We are to pray, forgive us our debts. And, and this is an instruction given to Christians 
So it's not just that we are to pray that our sins are forgiven in the atonement of Jesus Christ in our salvation. It is that we are to pray continuously, forgive us our sins. John says to Christians, if you say you have no sin in you, you lie. And, and, he, and John also, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells Christians, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So part of the, of the daily practice of Christians, a part of what we do when we gather together in worship, we are to confess our sins knowing that he is faithful and just, faithful and just, righteous, because of what he has given us in Christ, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ alone. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray the confession of sin. And, and, and the word debt here does remind us that that's what we're doing. We're carrying around this debt. We're, we're always carrying around this debt. Some of you in this room know what it's like to suffer under crushing financial debt. You, you, you can't get away from it. Someone's knocking at your door. Someone's sending you an email. Someone's calling on the phone. They're not going to forgive this debt. They're not going to forget this debt. And you can, all you have to do is watch television for a little bit. You can see how much of humanity is under that crushing weight because somebody's always promising how to get you out of debt. And the you get into more debt doing what they say to get out of debt in some cases. Just pay me to get you out of debt. What kind of sense does that make? But nonetheless, <laughs> as you look at this, borrow some money to get out of debt. Uh, but, but you look at this and you recognize that's a picture of who we are as human beings and sinful humanity. We're carrying around a debt and it has to be paid. But it's paid by Christ in full. And we are to daily pray for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and then you'll notice that it says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, that would be conveniently left out. This is not works righteousness. Jesus explains this in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, Jesus even told a parable about this, the unforgiving debtor released from prison. The point here isn't works righteousness. We don't earn forgiveness by forgiving others, but it's really the flip. If we are forgiven, then we are forgiving. And if we're not forgiving, then we have not experienced forgiveness. To experience forgiveness, the grace and mercy of God is by definition to extend that same thing to others. It is a test of authenticity. And we need to pray. It is interesting that Jesus didn't just say, hey, when God's forgiven your debts, you need to be forgiving. He says we're to pray that when we pray. That's interesting. So we need to hear ourselves say this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then the final clause, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, it's interesting, when I was a kid, uh, every once in a while, I grew up in the deep south, and uh, every once in a while, we would pass a tent, and there would be a big banner out on the road saying, you know, revival and deliverance ministry, you know, here for these days, Some, a, a deliverance ministry. And uh, these were kind of, uh, you know, generally way out there on the edge, charismatic Pentecostal revivals. And they were delivering people from all kinds of things, some of which I don't think are real. But nonetheless, I used to look at that and think, no, we're sophisticated. We're First Baptist Church people. We don't need deliverance. Christ delivered us. That's it. But Jesus says here, we are to pray, deliver us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Guess what? 
Compass Bible Church, it better be a deliverance ministry. Now, I'm not saying you put the banner out front. That would mislead people. But nonetheless, my church, it better be a deliverance ministry. At my seminary, I better be sending out deliverance ministers in this sense. We need deliverance. And, and, and what we need deliverance from more than anything else is sin, but also the tempter. The previous words were, and lead us not into temptation. Several months ago, I, I, I had a, a, an experience that it puzzled me at first. I started having major reporters, from, I mean major, like New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Times of London. They were calling and asking, what does this phrase in the Lord's Prayer mean? Now, I just I was puzzled because why would these secular reporters be calling about a clause in the Lord's Prayer and like all of them at once? And the reason was Pope Francis in one of his weekly audiences had suggested a change in the wording of the Lord's Prayer at this line. And guess what? When the prayer, when the Pope suggests changing a line in the prayer, it makes news. And even secular reporters are going, wait just a minute, I better look it up. Better call a Protestant. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so, okay, so I started getting a phone call, and uh, you know, they said, what does this mean? And I, I would tell them, and they said, well, what about a change? And, I, 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 and my first response was, this is the Lord's Prayer, not the Pope's Prayer. Uh, the Pope doesn't get to change the Lord's Prayer. Now, now, the point the Pope was making was this. He said, God doesn't lead us into temptation, so it doesn't make any sense to pray that God wouldn't lead us into temptation because he doesn't lead us into temptation. And... Uh, and in the Pope's favor here would be the book of James, in which James tells us that God's not the author of sin and that he does not tempt us in sin. So is there a contradiction here? Of course not. The problem is that this doesn't mean that we're praying that God will not tempt us as he will otherwise tempt us in sinning. The, the real context here is made very clear by the, the use, and sometimes even in English, the confusion of the words here. We speak about the testing of Jesus in the wilderness in his ministry, and, and, and there's testing that comes into our lives. Jesus says it's not wrong to pray, deliver me from this time of testing. Now, let me, let me make this practical. Let me make it practical. Um, throughout my ministry, I've had people come to me and say, I'm struggling with this particular sin. Sometimes in A or B or C, you can figure some of them out. And, and, and so they'll say, I'm struggling with this sin. I want to be uh, delivered from this sin. And, uh, I, 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 and, and yet, they would come back over and over again, I fell into this sin. And, and once again, I, 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 I succumbed. I I committed this sin. And then you'd find out, kind of figuring out the situation, that they put themselves in proximity to that sin. Uh, well, here's a clue. If you want to avoid that sin, avoid it! Uh, or they had uh, they'd gotten themselves, you know, where they were in the context in which that kind of sin was likely. Well, guess what? If you don't want to commit it, don't get yourself in that situation. And, 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 and then we are to pray that we will be delivered from a situation of testing. And Jesus says, not only it's all right to pray that way, he says, every time you pray, pray that, pray that, pray that. The, the Father knows you. He knows your heart. Pray to be delivered from temptation, <coughs> not to be led into temptation. And then delivered from the right way to see that, just, just given the New Testament Greek, is deliver us not only from evil, but uh, from the evil one. Without any, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Without any embarrassment, we want to be delivered from the tempter. We pray to be delivered from the deceiver. 
We pray to be delivered from the accuser. And, and look, if you're too sophisticated to believe in the devil, you're too sophisticated to believe in Jesus who defeated him. The Bible makes the devil very clear, never raises the devil beyond his, his rightful uh, understanding as a sinful creature with unusual powers. We do not in the Bible have a good, holy, powerful, righteous God and an evil, deceiving, accusing God. Satan is not God, but he does roam to and fro seeking whom he may devour. His, his doom is sure. I love the way Martin Luther puts it in that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Speaking of the devil, it says his doom is sure. And then he tells us one little word shall fell him. What's that word? You know that word. Jesus. One little word shall fell him. But Jesus tells us we are to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I know some of you right now, you're thinking that's not the end. That's not the end. There are other words coming. And, and those words are not wrong. They're not in some of the oldest manuscripts, but they are so repeated in scripture that they're, and, and they're even come right out of this prayer. And of course, some of you know it because you're hearing the Gano arrangement of the Lord's prayer. You've heard it sung. And, and you know, the climax that comes with the words, and thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Now, all of that is so thoroughly, comprehensively affirmed in Scripture. For thine is the kingdom, the very kingdom we pray is coming, and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can pray all of that in less than a minute out loud. The pattern that Jesus gave his disciples isn't long, but it's infinitely deep. Jesus Christ's school of prayer for his disciples comes down to this prayer given to the entire church that all of us together as his people would learn how to pray. We will pray longer prayers than this, but they're never going to get deeper. We're, 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 we're going to extend in times in our prayer our adoration. We're going to extend our confession right down to the specificity of the sins that we confess to the Father. We're going to extend our thanksgiving as we consider all the blessings God has given us. We're going to extend our requests as we make them known unto God but we will never get deeper than this prayer. And we don't add anything to what Jesus has told us we are to do in prayer. We avoid everything that he has warned us about, telling us how not to pray before he tells us to pray, and then we eagerly pray as he taught us to pray until he comes or until we go to be with him. We will never outgrow the Lord's prayer. Thankfully, I did outgrow God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. But we will never outgrow our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is a prayer not for the world, but for Christians. And our greatest hope is that anyone here who has not yet come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord 
would come by the power of the gospel to know the full forgiveness of sins because of what God has done for us in Christ, in his sinless life, in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection from the dead, and would come to know the offer of salvation that is given to all who believe in his name and repent of their sins. We hope that you also will become a Christian so that you also, with Christians throughout all the ages, can pray this prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you will take this text and apply it to our hearts to conform us to Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.